Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about, strangely enough, board games. And we're under a new format today, aren't we, Mark? I'm here with my good friend Mark, by the way. Yes, we're going to mix things up. We're going to talk about board games this week. And we're going to do so at a comfortable distance of about a 15-minute drive away. There you go. Yes, we are doing this remotely in two different locations uh, with recordings to be combined by our sound engineer, Mr. Bigney. Oh, dear Lord, I wouldn't want to be him right now. Well, I was saying this works out very well because you're finally, you know, accepting the restraining order that I have against you. The law cannot diminish my love for you, Michael Walker. (laughs) There you go. Well, Mark, it is uh, BGG Golden Geek nomination season, and everyone should get to their local website of Board Game Geek and set their nominations up because... In my opinion, this is the one and only time where you can actually really help the show and vote for our show for number one podcast because it gets our name out there. It's not so much. No, no. It's not so much about. Two things, Walker. I'm going to stop you right here. First of all, there are many, many, many ways that listeners help our show. There is many ways. I said this is the best one. I just said this is the best one. Normally, we save our shilling for the new segment. Anyway, let's move on. I'm calling a stop to this conversation. You've already mecked it up enough. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which this week is going to be Undaunted Normandy. And then I'm going to descend into the blessed silence of endless editing. So, Walker, what did you play last week? I, I want to do just a brief little disclaimer, at least for me. All of the games I'm going to talk about, even the feature game have all been played on platforms, not in real life. So in case there's some missing components or some sort of change that was made to the the platform, I have to apologize for that. But everything that I played this week was online. And the first game that I played this week was Orleans. I love Orleans. I wanted to actually definitely play it online because I'm wondering if it was like the... Because it's a very tactile game. You get the very thick wooden pieces and it's the nice bag builder like we like and i'm wondering if it i was wondering if it held up to like an online implementation and i loved it just as much well you have the nice you have the nice wooden pieces a number of people have to suffer with cardboard i do feel sorry for them i do i do feel their plight and and there is you know brief seconds that i feel sorry for them it is tragic what did you play mark so I finished up my game of The Quiet Year. I talked about The Quiet Year last week, the narrative game masterless role-playing game, which is a map-drawing game about telling a story about a community in response to card prompts. 
And the second half, at least, was much smoother than the first. I mean, one of the things about this kind of role-playing is that it takes a while to get into the groove, even if you're used to role-playing, because it's a very different kind of experience. And yes, all forms of role-playing require a certain amount of buy-in and a certain leap of faith, and some people take to it better than others. And the first half was kind of halting. We were feeling out, you know, what are you allowed to do in this kind of context? How much do I get to grab the reins of the story? And the second half, things were much smoother. We just let loose. I will comment on one more thing to, to cap off my comments about The Quiet Year, because my previous comments very much hold. It's not really the kind of story I want to tell. And the prompts led me to believe that replay value might not be as strong as a lot of the other entries in the genre, especially since a lot of the other entries in the genre rely on play sets, which can be entirely different settings, entirely different milieu, entirely different kinds of casts of characters, and they tend to be slightly more character-driven, which is both my preference and I think leads to greater variety in storytelling. The other thing that happens is, and I was surprised at how this works, the rules basically say the game ends when this card gets drawn, and the card that gets drawn says the Frost Shepherds arrive. The game ends. And I was wondering, oh, are there going to be prompts about the Frost Shepherds? Are we going to foreshadow what the Frost Shepherds are? Are we going to have some discussion after the Frost Shepherds arrive about what happens? No. If you want to have post-game discussion about what the Frost Shepherds are and what happens upon their arrival, then you can. It's just that the rule structure as they exist offers no guidance and no structure to do this. And I found that somewhat strange. I mean, yes, games like this often have a little bit of difficulty in the denouement. This is true of Durant's, my favorite of the genre. You have to... Ten, things can kind of end with a bang that... that often leave other threads unfulfilled and in fiasco mostly people just die and end up and or end up in prison but i it didn't leave a sour taste on my mouth because you know i was enjoying the experience but i didn't want it to outlast its welcome but it just ended with kind of an unsatisfying period and so that's my additional footnote. If you want to hear more about The Quiet Year, you can just listen to me talk about it last week. And I'm very glad to have tried it. I always enjoy these kinds of experiences. But again, as I've commented before in terms of role-playing, you pick the kind of system that will lead you to tell the kind of story you like. And this isn't necessarily my bag. So The Quiet Year is impressive, but not my preferred in the genre. And who's the who puts out The Quiet Year? Quiet Years by Avery Alder, and it was published by Buried Without Ceremony, which I have to say is a pretty awesome imprint name. Yeah, I, knew, I do need to go back by to Orleans. It was designed by Reiner Stockhausen and put out by TMG and DIP Games. I noticed that you wanted to... Oh, well, it's DLP, Walker, actually. I noticed you wanted to correct me in my presentation, but uh, couldn't be bothered to do it for yourself. That's fine hypocrisy I, 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 that you're modeling I, for I, the listener. I just, I just did, and so there. <laughs> Let's start off with that on this next game, which is Shadow Rift, a game that you and I both like. It's by Jeremy Anderson and put out by Game Night Productions. The implementation is fantastic. Unfortunately, it doesn't have the newest expansion, which is Boomtown, which I, I really wanted to try so I could talk about it. But other than that, the the platform was great. It, it took care of everything. It shuffled all the cards for you. It made... This is the one case where I think it really did improve the game because the the sort of reset every turn in shadow rift is kind of a pain you got to reset the town you got to reset the travelers you got to you know move stuff around and this is just simple two clicks and you're ready for the next turn what platform were you using it was on uh on board uh, tabletop simulator okay so it was scripted and it took care of the end of round stuff yeah yeah, yeah. it's 100% scripted i have to say 
I am very rarely sympathetic to people's claims that, oh, Tabletop Simulator is great because, yes, it's cumbersome to drag things around, but at least it shuffles decks for you. I don't know how painful people find shuffling, but the end-of-round sequence in Shadow Rift is pretty cumbersome. And so if it automates all that, then that is definitely a pro. Yeah, and it sets it up, like, at the very beginning. It just lists all the races that you can fight against, and you just click away, and then it sets up their deck and all of their cards. And Why are you parsing it, Shadow Rift uh, as a race war, Walker? I'm very sorry. That being said, the opponent, it, it uses, you don't have to pick uh, the different cards to purchase. It uses, you know, the what's in the book, the... Recommended the setups? Suggested. Yeah, the recommended setups and, and sets it all out for you. So that's, you know, it's too bad that you couldn't, I'll take a look at it and see if there's one that's generic where you can like pick the decks that you want, but it's nice that, you know, if you're in a, you know, just want to get a game in, it, it sets it all up for you automatically. Good stuff. And that's... That was Shadow Rift on Tabletop Simulator. On the topic of excellent Tabletop Simulator mods, I was almost converted, or at least I was persuaded of some of the benefits of Tabletop Simulator because of my experiences with the Spirit Island Tabletop Simulator mod. Spirit Island being by the brilliant Eric R. Royce, published by Greater Than Games. Disclaimer, Eric Royce is a personal friend of mine. And the Spirit Island mod is amazing. One of the best features that it has, and I'm amazed that this is not used more often in other tabletop simulator mods, is if you mouse over an area and just hit a number key, it will deploy various things where your cursor is. So, rather than having to laboriously go and find the bag with the kind of marker you want and then dragging it as a physics object all the way over to the table and then dropping it where you want, all you need to do is mouse over and hit number one. And there you go. And it'll just drop a thing there. And this is especially important for a game like Spirit Island, where where you can drop three different kinds of invaders or blight or four different kinds of tokens or, 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 or. And so it was a marvelous, marvelous feature. I actually did a solo play of Spirit Island in 30 minutes start to finish on the tabletop simulator mod. That is roughly the amount of time that it would take me to play in person with setup and teardown included. So all in all, it was the first time, the very first time that I played a tabletop simulator game and I felt that I was getting something out of the platform. This is not the only time that it's happened, but it's just about the only time that it's happened to this degree. I also then played Spirit Island with Huey, Dewey, and Louie, all three of them. That was a much longer experience, but then again, of course, so is four-player Spirit Island as opposed to one-player Spirit Island. And I really got a chance to experiment with some of the new stuff because another benefit of the Spirit Island mod is it has some of the things called aspects in them. Aspects are slight cards that can zhuzh up the intro difficulty spirits who are perceived to require a little bit of love and attention. I am not in that camp. One of my favorites is still Shadows Flicker Like Flames. I think that Shadows Flicker, although almost universally regarded as the weakest spirit, I think has some serious mid and late game potential if you know what you're doing and if you use the cards appropriately. Uh, Shadows Flicker can affect cities right at the beginning of the game. Shadows Flicker's got gather powers and fear powers. Not so much on damage, but again, you can specialize into whatever you want. Anyway, I love Shadows Flicker Like Flames conceptually and in terms of gameplay, so I played it twice, both times with these new aspects that kind of uh, mix things up. Fabulous, and it, just a little, little taste of the expansion material coming out in Jagged Earth, making me want to, making me eager for the, uh, the, the new elements, even independently of the new spirits. And who knows when that's coming out, because, you know, Kickstarter fulfillment is a thing. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, so Spirit Island remains, of course, a brilliant game, 
And I really do think that the Tabletop Simulator mod, the scripted one, the scripted deluxe mod, for what it's worth, really does show Tabletop Simulator to among its best advantage. And it was great once again. We're, we're, we're keeping up with this tradition, and I highly recommend it. On Thursday, we would regularly get together, Huey, Louie, and I, and play a game. This time, Dewey joined in. And it really is a nice little bit of touchstone normalcy, you know, trying to schedule in equivalents to what you normally had in your normal weekly schedule. And it was lovely to be able to do so with an absolutely wonderful game that remains incredibly solid. And I have nothing but good things to say about Spirit Island, but we've talked a lot about Spirit Island. I just wanted to, to, to throw out that I've been playing it online with great success. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, it's too bad that so much work was put into such a terrible game. You and I got to play a game together. It's, I think it's going to be another hidden gem that we found. It's called Carlos Magnus. Came out in 2000. That's Latin for Big Carol, by the way. Big Carol, is that like a big Christmas song? Came out in 2000 by Leo Colovini by Rio Grande Games. And we played it on a different platform. What's the name of this platform we, we played, played it on, on Yukata. This is... I've been trying to experiment with as many different platforms as possible because I don't like Tabletopia. I don't like Tabletop Simulator. A lot of people swear by Yukata. A lot of people swear by Boitage and Board Game Arena. I haven't been... Just as a footnote, I haven't been able to try Board Game Arena for the simple fact that every time... I've been in a position to play a game with somebody. Board Game Arena has either been down or full. So there's that. I'm not going to give them money before trying it for the first time, just as a, as a general operating principle. I might break down on this later, but that's my, my current position. And Boitageux just doesn't have games that I want to play. So I jumped at the chance because I'd been wanting to try Carolus Magnus for some time, and it was on Yukata, which is a, a German, but it, it's fully an English site for web-based implementation of board games, and so that's why we gave Carolus Magnus a spin. Yeah, and it, it worked out not too badly. It took a while to, you know, get used to the, the interface at the beginning, but once we got started, I think it clicked along at a good pace. It's an area majority game where you're, you're placing cubes out on the board, on the main board, and then on your own personal board, you're changing how strong those cubes are. And I think the, 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 the choices to make, not only in turn order, because, you know, it's, it's a very you know, intricate part of the game, choosing, you know, when you're going to go. And not only does it tell you when you can go, it tells you how far around the board the the floating laser shooting head goes. Well, in Yukata, yes, it's a it's a disembodied glowing red face. So it does, de- it does seem like some sort of <laughs> giant death laser, laser implement that is rotating around the board, absolutely. In theory, it's supposed to be Charlemagne, but in practice, it's a so, giant okay. floating death head. So when the giant head lands on a particular area of the map, that's when it will be assessed and its control will change based on who has the most control there. And I think, I really think you can get a game of this done in about 30 minutes with people who know what they're doing. And I think the decision space is huge, much like, you know, like a, like a Hansa Teutonica. It's a very vicious game. And I think people are going to love it. You really need to give this a try. What else do you have to say about it, Mark? Well, I'll say that the designer, Leo Colavini, has been, you know, obviously he's been around for a while. He's a very seminal Euro game designer. I tried some of his designs early on in my board gaming career, and they didn't really click with me, namely Clans and Cartagena. Cartagena I thought was okay. Clans I, I, I didn't really like. But he very much likes this idea of pieces on the board that don't necessarily belong to you, which is something that can be done really, really well or really, really poorly. I didn't like how it was done in Clans. Here in Carolus Magnus, there's, as you say, these 
cubes go out, but who controls the cubes is a function of how many cubes you've devoted on your own board to controlling them. So if you've got this purple cube, you can either sock the purple cube on the board, which will help determine scoring, or you can sock it on your own board, in which case that means that the purple cubes are more likely to be loyal to you. And the only serious problem I had with the design, I, I like you, enjoyed it quite a bit. I love area majority. I love confrontational, simple rule, uh, big decision space heroes, and Icarolus Magnus is absolutely that. The implementation in Yukata has the rules as published in the box, but my understanding is that nobody who plays Carolus Magnus on the reg plays it with the published rules. They play it with a variant, and the difference is as follows. In the published rules, at the end of your turn, you resupply your cubes by randomly throwing dice. And that was painful. If you need to make a push in purple and the dice just say you don't get any purple cubes, that can be awkward to say the least and it's very unsatisfying. We didn't really feel that too, too badly. I did near the end, but it was my own fault. So I'm going to claim responsibility for that. But there's a variant that was published a while ago and that most people seem to prefer whereby instead of throwing cubes to replenish your supply, you draft your set of cubes from a public display. And this public display is only refreshed at the end of the round, which further emphasizes the other thing you mentioned, namely the importance of turn order. You can't do that in Yukata, and this might be one of the rare instances where tabletop simulator's flexibility might be ideal, so maybe we might give it a shot on that format, maybe, who knows, because I, like you, very much want to try this game again. We played it with Dr. Stallone, and he seems to want to try to play it again. Maybe it will be less charming without the giant floating death head, but I, for one, am optimistic. This also makes me want to retry another Leo Colovini design called Alexandros that I tried a few years ago and thought it was intriguing but kind of wonky, which is very much Colovini's design space. And just as a final capper, Colavini's other design that we tried somewhat recently and very much enjoyed was the Bridges of Shangri-La. So we're kind of, you know, going back to 20 years ago in the heyday of Euro games for some of Colavini's finest. And I, I, for one, am very much enjoying what he does, even though Clans and Cartagena aren't very much to my taste. But Carolus Magnus, great game. Well, with this, the with the drafting mechanism you want to introduce, I'm worried about the AP, but I'm thinking that maybe you know, you're going to have a strategy. You're going to know what you're going to need ahead of time, and you're yes. probably just going to know the pile that you want. But then it, then if someone takes it before you, then it, it could fall into a little, you know, timing issues. But we'll see. I'm, I definitely want to give it a try. How much is your skepticism premised on the fact that the first time we played this game, it was with someone who is, say, <clears throat> prone to a little bit of overanalysis? That, that could be a problem. Maybe it was, you know, with the game already you know, whizzing around and, and hitting the same speed bump over and over again, maybe, you know, is making me a little cautious, but we'll see. As I'm fond of saying, don't hate the game, hate the player. I got to play Race for the Galaxy. Race for the Galaxy, every time I go back to it, and I played it with Dr. Contra, and it's Dr. Contra's favorite game, and we, we play it somewhat frequently, and every time I go back to Race for the Galaxy, it makes me almost angry at how much time people are spending on inferior Tableau Builders. Because Race for the Galaxy, having been published over 10 years ago, is so much better than all of these bland, ridiculously procedural, uninteresting, tension-free, samey, nonsense things that are... Symbology-free. Okay, 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 look, look... <laughs> We can talk about that in a minute, but... Wait, wait, In wait. terms of payoff, you absolutely feel the benefit from playing Race for the Galaxy. I just do not understand 
how their the, the design lessons haven't been improved on. And I remember, just as another historical footnote, when Race for the Galaxy came out, the critical consensus was, this game is genius. Shame that all the player intera- interaction is somewhat indirect and not particularly pronounced. And if anything, the market has gone further away from whatever level of player interaction that Race for the Galaxy has in a lot of these tableau builders. So I'm utterly mystified. Anyway... Race for the Galaxy is fabulous. Everyone has their own preferred way to play because now there's three arcs of expansions. We always play the same way, which is with Brink of War, with Prestige No Takeovers. Fight me in real life if you don't like that way. Now, I'll, I'll play Race for the Galaxy any, any way uh, you want. And it goes by at a blistering pace, but every tableau turns out differently. I cannot say enough good things about Race for the Galaxy. It, it still has... There are still some expansions and arcs left in the tiller. Thomas Lehman has some more stuff. It doesn't seem to be his primary design goal at the moment, and who knows if Rio Grande is going to publish it. But anybody who likes tableau builders and certainly will enjoy something like a Terraforming Mars or an Everdell or a Wingspan or whatever, and is ready for the next thing, and is ready to put in a little bit of effort up front to learn some symbology, you have to at least try Race for the Galaxy. It is criminal if you don't, and that is what I have to say about them. Also got to play Battlecon. Battlecon is, in terms of nostalgia, the first game I ever kickstarted. And here we played it online, And in terms of two-player card battlers, we talked about this in the context of the review, and we also talked about this in the context of the Aurus. Somewhat daunting on first play, in a different way than Race for the Galaxy. It's daunting because primarily it's a no-luck, well, simultaneous play. Some people assert very confidently that if it has simultaneous play, that that, that's kind of like luck. I'm not one of those people, but then again, I'm not particularly attached to such categorizations. But uh, there's no randomness after the cards hit the table, so there's no random allocation, and there's no random uh, uh, hand of cards. It all cycles through in a deliberative pace. Played it twice, actually, and I played it both times with Dr. Stallone online with Tabletop Simulator, and one of the things that I adore about Battlecon all the versions, there's War for Indians, there's Devastation of Indians, there's Trials, there's Wanderers, there's, you take your pick. The cast is huge. Unfortunately, I was instructed by my opponent that I had to play the same character both times, which uh, under, undercut a little bit of my desire to, because I don't get to play it that often. And one of the things with games like this, with a roster that deep, I want to try new stuff. I want to see new tra- strategies and tactics and approaches, especially since a lot of these fighters have been tinkered with rather considerably. The fourth edition of Battlecon, which is sort of the, which is called Battlecon Unleashed slash it's, it's the revision of Battlecon Devastation of Indians, is going to be released this summer. They're taking pre-orders over at level 99, but some of the early versions are already available on the Tabletop Simulator module, and so I was playing around with some of my and Especially when you own so many of these, you know, expansion stuff already, and you don't get to play it much, you'd like to try, you know, these new fighters out. 100%. Anyway, even with that, I had a blast playing Battlecon. Again, what, I'll just repeat one thing that we said in the review, or that I said in the review, and Walker said that I was wrong because he's wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong. You're the wrong one. You say I'm wrong, but you're wrong. You're wrong. Wow. There are three levels of play at Battlecon. There's the, I'm going to just play these cards, and they seem like good effects, and let's see what happens. And then there's, I know what the universe of my card effects can do, and I'm going to steward these properly. And then there's the third level, which is, I know what my opponent's deck can do, and I'm going to play my cards in anticipation of that. And even when you're playing new characters against new characters, you get to that third stage by the end of the match if you're paying attention. And that's neat. 
I like it when a game has a bit of an arc, when you get to learn things. It, it's very similar to my other favorite two-player card battling game, namely Sakura Arms, which you get to discover bits about your deck there. There, of course, there's randomness, and it's it's blind construction. Battlecon, there's no construction. But similarly, over the course of the match, if you're paying attention, you get to make these little discoveries and learn things. And that is one of the th things that I love in a two-player head-to-head card battler, and Battlecon delivers in spades. It is a shame that I don't get to play it more often, but it is not appreciated locally, which is one of the reasons why resorting to online gaming has uh, found it a way to hit the table. And given that it is only a card game with minimal components, it is reasonably well done. Now, I just will note as a footnote, uh, Battlecon does have a devoted app. There's Battlecon Online. I have not tried it. <laughs> maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm owed... Like there was some Kickstarter reward or some point I'm owed like some resources in the online version, the official supported first party app. But uh, I don't know. I can't be bothered. I've I've had to learn so many new platforms over the course of the past week, Walker. I cannot be bothered to learn new devoted ones. I'm there with you, brother. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you are. So that was BattleCon specifically. We played uh, we played for many of the sets, but this is, all of them are by D. Brad Dalton, who is the founder and lead designer of Level Ninety Nine Games. And those are the games we played last week. And now on to the news, and why it doesn't matter. So, on the topic of Eric Royce, brilliant game designer and fabulous person, he has... No, a... you're taking my one thing, Mark. On for... Now, on for my first thing I'll take what I want. ...the news. <laughs> you just We just talked about the designer of, of Spirit Island, Eric Royce. There is a game on Kickstarter right now called For Science. It's a fast-paced, cooperative, block-stacking game, saving the world from a pandemic in the name of science. Can I just insert now, a minor this, historical Is this well-timed yeah, yeah. or, or terribly timed? Both, possibly. This this game has been in the works for, mid, for, for, for over five years. So this is not well, some sort of quick cash-in. Well, I'm, I'm just saying... We, you have read, I have read, many reports from this particular designer, and he does not, you know, quickly put out games. The, these are developments in progress, and he works on them quite extensively over years. So, I, yes, he I has had this in the works Eric for a long Royce time. Abandon games that have twice the development work that many published designs do. He takes this seriously. He works on a long time scale. He tests things. I've, I've, I've seen the process, both from the inside and from the outside. I have not played for science, but I know a lot of people who have and whose judgments I trust, and universally they sing its praises. So I am very much looking to, forward to for science. So it looks like it's, I'll just go over very quickly. It looks like it's some sort of tile lane at the very beginning where you, where you, set up these tiles and that shows you a layout of the of the cure you're trying to make up and then you've got to actually make that design with the blocks stack it in the way that you've set up the tiles and then after you've done that it goes to a secondary tile lane game where you actually have to uh you know make the the serum itself so it looks very interesting and it all happens in 15 minutes there's a 15 minute timer and you have to get everything done within those 15 minutes so that's another a bonus as well and gray fox games is going to be donating five dollars to direct relief for every copy sold so so double bonus yeah it's on kickstarter right now go check it out if you want other bit of news is cool mini or not is one of the few publicly traded game companies they're publicly traded on the hong kong stock exchange and there are certain levels of financial disclosure and certain business things that comes with that most other game publishers are private companies and so they don't have to tell anybody anything and that's one of the reasons why we don't know very much about the board games industry because you know numbers are hard to come by but Cool or not, it's an exception. However, their stock has been pulled from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange from trading. 
suspended, not pulled indefinitely, but suspended. And the reason why is because they are being subjected to an audit. And there's been some, I'm not going to get into the weeds here, both because I don't understand them and because I don't think it's necessarily strictly relevant. There was an announcement that it was being suspended. There was a claims that it's because the auditors needed various information, some of which sounded very frightening. A number of CPAs and auditors crawled out of the woodwork and read it. And some of them said, eh, this sounds a bit dodgy. Some of them said, eh, this sounds perfectly reasonable. And then Coleman and Yermott put out their own statement, which said, look, guys, this is only because of how we do accounting. When we start a Kickstarter, we get all this money, but we listed all as liabilities. So if you give us four million bucks to print a game and we start making components and we spend a million bucks to do that, we look like we're a million bucks in the hole because we have, we claim we haven't pocketed the four million yet. Anyway, that by and large is their story. Uh, this is bad timing because Ankh is supposed to be hitting Kickstarter tomorrow. And a number of people have used this as a declaration that they're going to keep them at arm's reach until they have, say, you know, maybe made good on their delivery of Project Elite or a number of other outstanding projects. Uh, Bloodborne is also still yet to be fulfilled. I don't know enough to parse any of this. All that I'm saying is that this is bad. On the face of it, it's bad news. Maybe it isn't, but on the face of it, it is. And it's bad timing. So that's the news I have about Coolman or not. Yeah, the way I looked at it was the fact that these auditors are probably coming into it with no idea how this industry works whatsoever. What you know, how Kickstarter works. You know, it's a it's a, this how this company works is completely different than any other business. Oh come on! And they get this huge. They know how investment works. They know how money up front to do a project works. It's not totally alien. No, but it it's it's just a different way to do it where it's like funded by everyone ahead of time and you have to you know send that out it's usually it's you know investment but who means cares you if pour that money in who cares if your creditors are it's a either one or lost or a bunch right of nerds it's all the same no but the bank knows they can just lose that money and get nothing where where these people have pre-purchased something it's a little bit different than investing uh, i don't know man I don't know enough about the private sector. I'll take your word for it. That is the news and why it doesn't matter and why Mark is always wrong. On to our feature game of the week, which is Undaunted Normandy. Mark, what is the history of this game? Undaunted Normandy was published by Osprey Games and designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson are probably best known for having co-designed War Chest, published by AEG, the kind of sort of almost bag builder with those beautiful poker chips where you play an abstracted tactical game. Undaunted Normandy is also an abstracted tactical game in which you involve deck building, which is functionally similar. They also co-designed a game called Orc Olympics, which... The title makes me happy, but I don't know anything about it. Thompson is slightly more from the war game perspective. He's published a couple of things with Dave Verson Games, a couple of solo games called Pavlov's House and Castle Itter. He also co-designed Europe Divided, which is a sort of kind of almost war game derivative hybrid Euro thing. And Trevor Benjamin is also perhaps best known recently for having published the very successful two-player card game Mandala. Now, Walker, before you get into a description, an unhelpful summary of what one does in Undaunted Normandy, why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about why we are reviewing this game this week? Why did you suggest we review Undaunted Normandy? Well, it was put to me that we should do, because we're because of what's going on, and because we have to play everything online, we wanted to start off with something a little bit lighter this week. And I was given a list of games that were light, and I know I had played this a couple times, and I really wanted to dive more deeply into this game. Uh, Dr. Handsome had already showed me the implementation on, on Tabletop Simulator. Dr. And Stallone. fine, so this is Dr. Stallone, sorry. And I said, well, why don't we give this a try, because I knew he wanted to play it, so I had an outlet to play it there, and then I could play some with you, and I could easily get the games in. 
That is why I wanted to try. There's been a lot of adjustment lately, and we've been playing a lot of cumbersome games. Some cumbersome games we enjoyed, some cumbersome games we didn't enjoy. And for our first transition into a purely online existence, I wanted a component minimal delight that I knew would be quick and easy. Not necessarily quick and easy to review, but quick and easy to play so that we could sort of get used to it and get our feet wet. Anyway, so with all that in mind, I felt that this was a useful disclaimer and, in fact, overall color, what we think of of the game. Why don't you give an unhelpful summary about what one does in Undaunted Normandy? Well, in Undaunted Normandy, it's a World War II skirmish game, which incorporates a deck-building mechanism where you're playing cards to to, uh, move your troops and shoot your troops around the table, but you're only drawing four cards... A turn, and one of those cards is being used for your initiative. So now you're down to three cards. So you really have huge decisions to make in this game. Because if you're not, because you have to watch what the objectives are. There's tons of different scenarios, and you really have to concentrate on what your objectives are. Because if you have cards in your hand that not that are not advancing your objectives, you really need to look over and see how you can hinder your opponent. Because if you're not stopping them from doing their objectives, then you've lost the game. So when it comes to deck building games, I've been saying for years now that that I would rather the, that if it's going to be a pure deck builder, that it be very, very, very quick. Or if it's not going to be a pure deck builder, that it have some other salient feature going on. You know, some other major gameplay element that the card, uh, that the deck building is is the engine that drives it. So, you know, examples often include things like Mage Knight, where deck building is just one small piece of a very large puzzle, or even simpler games like Asgard's Chosen, where the deck building drives a sort of area control battle on the map. There's Tyrants of the Underdark, which is eh, a little bit more of a slog, but again, same same idea. The, the deck building is driving sort of an area control, area majority element. And I have to say, one of the things that I adore about Undaunted Normandy is it's both. It's super quick and streamlined and tight and focused, but at the same time, the deck building is used in service of broader area control scenario driven thing and so i really feel like i'm getting the best of both worlds when it comes to the priorities that i want a deck builder to have in the contemporary design environment yeah it's it is really huge right because not only in normal deck builders you just look at the individual cards you work you look at a little bit how it synergizes in your deck but not how it goes into the game this you have to sort of look at your objectives what i need for objectives how is the 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 skirmish advancing on the table what's taking casualties and then that is deciding what cards you are buying it's like totally different than any other deck builder out there for sure and I'd just like to start with my absolute favorite mechanical element of Undaunted Normandy, and that is the initiative system, which you touched on in your introduction. Because so often, initiative systems exist, but they're very inconsequential. You're like, Ugh, okay, fine, whatever. It's like elaborate tiebreaker mechanisms in effect. Somebody has to go first, and so there's this way to f- figure it out. But in Undaunted Normandy, when you take casualties... You have to get rid of a card of the same unit. If your riflemen take a hit, one of your rifleman cards has to go out of the game. And it starts from your hand. So if you have a rifleman card in your hand out of your precious four-card hand, you're going to lose effectively a third of your turn if you get hit first. But the way you win initiative is by picking a good card from your four-card hand to devote there. Now... Very often, in some in some cases, you can just discard uh, what's called a Fog of War card, which is a nothing card, but it has an initiative value one. You're, you're going to lose the bid in all likelihood. Sometimes you're indifferent, but much of the time, 
And this is one of my favorite aspects of tension in Undaunted Normandy. You're looking at the card and say, I need all of these, but I also need to win initiative. What can I give up to keep initiative because I am vulnerable to counterfire? And I adore that tension in Undaunted Normandy. Yeah, that, that sort of touches on the combat. The combat is super easy to figure out. It's like, you know, the armor of the of the unit plus the armor of the space they're in and the space is away. That's what you need to roll. I'm not going to go too much into it. No line of sight rules. No line of sight rules. But... But when you're deciding what to shoot, it's huge things. Because like you said, if you win the initiative, you can shoot at units that you think that player has in their hand. Because now they're going to be down to three cards. If you can bring that down to two cards, that's huge. So not only are you trying to figure out where the best place to advance your troops are, but you're looking at, well, even though that scout over there is not doing anything... It might be, you know, he might be trying to advance that up or whatever. So, or between the two different riflemen, I'm going to shoot at rifleman A because he might have, you know, he's more likely to have that in his in his hand. And if he doesn't have that in his hand anymore, then, you know, that's a huge advantage. And this dovetails with another aspect of deck building that is frequently a problem that Undaunted Normandy does very well, and that's trashing. And in Undaunted Normandy, the, the way you trash a card is just by playing it. You say, okay, I'm playing this card and I'm going to trash it. It's just an option that you can do. However, it goes back into your supply. And what's fascinating, and those times when you do it uh, in a focused way, it can be extremely gratifying, is at one stage of the game, you do not need a unit to activate very much. You're relatively indifferent to their prospects. And so you just churn those cards out of your deck. You just get them out. But then when the end game comes along, after you've done your focus, you then are glad to get them back. And it is that transition and that ebb and flow that works so seamlessly with the trashing, which is great. It's not like so many other games, even good deck builders, where you just want to trash cards. This is a card that you either trash or don't want to trash. Here it's far more situational. Am I ready to make the push? Am I ready to make for control? Am I in a firefight? Am I in a slog? It's wonderful. Well, the other trashing is when this when you uh, when you're moving your troops around, you only can move through places you've already scouted. And when you scout them out, you're getting these fogs, what they call fogs of war cards in your deck, and they're like sort of like curses or just useless cards that go into your deck. So you're trying to get those out of your deck too. And there's very interesting ways to do that as well. There's the scout cards. Not only can you can you use the scouts to get them out of your deck, which lets you draw more cards, but you can also use the scouts to put Fog of Wars in your in your opponent's deck, which is another way. There's I'm going to go into a player interaction segment later, but there, that's yet another way that there's player interaction in this game. And that leads to another thing that I, I very much appreciate in Undaunted Normandy, which is the unit differentiation. So there's no asymmetry in the units of... Undaunted Normandy. The German forces are the same as the American forces. The asymmetry in terms of force setup comes from the scenarios, and we'll talk about the scenarios in a little bit, but the scouts are amazing. They get to do wonderful things. The machine gunners are amazing. They get to do wonderful things. The snipers are amazing. They get to do wonderful things, etc., etc. The only unit that seems unlovable, just pedestrian and straightforward and not particularly powerful, are the riflemen. But the riflemen are the only way you can win the game because they're the only ones that can actually hold territory and thereby give you victory points. I love it when conflict games have that kind of setup where your elite units are very specialized and they're very good at what they do, but they cannot advance your victory conditions. This has been done a number of times in miniatures war games where, you know, it's only line infantry or the unspectacular, slow, vulnerable, fr frail people running around on foot 
they're the ones who hold objectives. And I, and that dynamism works here exactly. It is very easy to get overwhelmed with the power of your machine gunners and you're mowing things down and you're figuring, I am doing great until those little ground pounders show up and claim the objective and now you've lost. It's wonderful. Exactly. And then on top of the riflemen, there's the officers that are in your deck. They're not actually represented on the map. They're sort of like in the background giving the orders, but they're the cards that are going to allow you we sort of talked about buying cards, but the other cool thing in this game is the fact that cards aren't really giving being given a nominal value. You can pick whatever cards you want. There's no currency, yeah. The only limitations are that if you're using Officer A to get cards, then you can only take A cards, or if you're taking Officer B, then you can only take B cards. But that's not the only choice you get with these officers. You know, uh, you can... Uh, Either, like I just said, add more cards to your deck, or they can let you draw more cards for that round, and that's huge since you only have you know three to start. Drawing more cards is is huge, or it lets you replay a card that you've already played that round. So if you need a unit to act twice, then they can jump in there and do that. So you so that you know trying to decide what of those three things that I think I've just pretty well explained how useful all three of those things are is just huge. And every time they come up, it's like this wondering how are you going to best use these officers when because they they come up just as a footnote officers also have an amazing initiative value so you're often tempted to slough them off to win an initiative as well so that's effectively a fourth tension in how to use these these very valuable cards so we've talked about all of these different units mark sort of touched on the scenario so to graduate into the scenarios i'm just going to talk about the fact that they did a fantastic job on on slowly introducing these units to you through the scenarios like the first one they only use a couple and they slowly get advanced you know bigger and bigger and surely slowly introduce all these different units so you're not overwhelmed i think that's another great part about the game is that it you know slowly eases you into it so you don't have to you know take all this rules load right off the beginning and very often in similar games and skirmish games or battle games i object to this i want to i want to skip to the cool stuff but here in undaunted normandy the cool stuff is not the different units the cool stuff is the fundamental of the card play. And if you started right off the bat with snipers and mortar teams, I was about to say snorpers. Snorpers are a very, very elite unit. Most people don't talk about them. But if you started right off the bat with snipers and mortars, you'd kind of lose those fundamental dynamics that I talked about of trashing cards at the beginning but getting them back later and the dynamics of focusing on your riflemen and using your riflemen properly. So here is one of the few cases where I don't mind the new units were introduced on a very slow, slow measured pace. So I think the scenarios is the only difficult Sorry, difficult. I think I feel that the scenarios are the only negative. Usually I go to the negatives at the end, but this is usually... I found no negatives in this game. You know, it does not go too long. The tear-up and set-up is not terrible. The The fact that it's only two-player fits the theme perfectly. The flow back and, flow back and forth is fantastic. It's super easy to teach. Like I already said, the combat is super easy to get through. It doesn't, you know, slow the game down. And there's plenty of scenarios to choose from. So, like I said, not much bad. The only thing I, I I found some of the scenarios were a little, you know, it seemed one-sided. But in these in these war games, sometimes it is. I didn't see any paragraphs that said, you know, make sure you play this, you know, one side then back the other way because it's it is unbalanced. But some of them seemed to lean towards you getting key cards in a certain order in a turn. Like you, you know, if you do not activate this unit twice in a round there's no possible way it's going to make this you know huge push up this no man's land where it's going to get you know destroyed so if you don't get that particular draw then this scenario probably is not going to work for you so that's the only weakness i saw in this game 
whatsoever. I don't know if the scenarios are balanced or imbalanced. I haven't played the same scenarios over and over again enough. I played uh, several scenarios uh, uh, two or three times, but that I don't think that's enough of a data set to comment. What I will say this, what I think is unbalancing in Undaunted Normandy, and it's one of the things that I don't like about it, you're rolling a small volume of dice. You're going to be not rolling very many dice over the course of a round, and that's how attacks are resolved. And, you know, to, to hit a unit, you might need to roll a six or higher or a seven or higher here. And... If you're going to be doing this a small number of times, if one player is reliably hitting when another player is reliably missing, it's going to lead to some lopsided results. The other thing that I'd say specifically in the context of the scenario design is that sometimes you should evaluate, and this is especially true of conflict games or war games, you should evaluate a game system based on it at its worst. And typically in the context, I, I say this often with respect to squad-level World War II games, this is when you just re, re, uh, reduce to some sort of slog firefight where you're just firing at each other from entrenched positions waiting for somebody to break. Undaunted Normandy doesn't do that very often, but some scenarios lead to that more often than others. When that happens... I'm still okay with Undaunted Normandy because of the fundamental quality of the card flow, because of these tensions of initiative and all these other things. So I'm okay with it. But this is what I'll say with respect to the scenarios, in addition to the fact that sometimes they lead to slogs. Some of these nuances that we're talking about of recognizing the value of some units, of recognizing the value of trashing at some points as opposed to getting cards later... Some of these only become clear ex post facto. Sometimes when you're in the middle of it, the obvious play and the play that you kind of feel like you're being pushed to make is the dull play. And this is despite the simplicity of the system. Normally when systems and games are so simple and accessible and clean, the nuances are more obvious. On Daunted Normandy, I think some of the nuances you have to not fight the system, but be consciously take a step back. If you find yourself in a slog position, if you find yourself in the scenario where you think the scenario is stupid or there's only one way to play it, you have to take a couple steps back and figure, okay, how can I exploit some of these other tricks that I haven't been using? And I find that very difficult in the middle of a session of Undaunted Normandy. And I think part of that is because of the scenario design. After the game, usually my opponent is very able to say, look, I was afraid you were going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And then I think, oh, yeah, I really should have been doing that. That would have been much smarter. And when I win a game, I'm very much in the same position. It's like, look, I, I, I think you could have done this. And then the player's like, oh, I, that, that never occurred to me. And again, something about the system, despite its simplicity, leads the obvious play to sometimes be the dull play and the stupid play. And I don't even know how much of that, uh, how much that is a criticism. No, I agree. But I agree with what you said, it, you know, and it's because it's very hard to turn on a dime and, you know, by like we talked about how do you can call your deck back and, and introduce more cards. This is not something you do very quickly. And so in the middle of a scenario, it's a little hard. Especially since you only have that three card hand. It can be hard to internalize, okay, what I need to do this turn is just get rid of these cards. Just, it's called hunker down in the in the system. I just need to hunker down this turn. It feels dumb, but it's often the smart thing to do. I just want to touch on the combat. Once again, I said I wasn't going to go into it, but some parts are very interesting because we've talked about, you know, you're rolling the dice to shoot at units, and if it's in the person's hand, then they have to discard it. But if they don't have it in their hand, then it's got to come out of their discard pile. And if it's not in their discard pile, then it's got to come out of their deck. And if it's not there, then you're actually removing the token off of the board. So when you're rolling the dice, it's not only, it's not, that's not the only choice you're making because some units have this suppression skill, which makes the unit flip over. So you might think that taking the unit off the board 
is the best, always the best scenario. But it's not because when they play that card again, they get to put it on and act with it immediately. Whereas if they're suppressed, they have to waste an entire turn with that unit, you know, play a card to flip it over and then play a second card then to activate it. So even though you're not causing casualties, you know, you're doing something that's sometimes much worse. And, And just, like I said, yet another little tiny choice that, you know, really makes up a great game. So I'm going to go on to deck building, uh, because normal deck builders, they're, a lot of the newer ones have like zero to no interaction. And that's something we've talked about. The fact that, you know, you're just doing, you're cycling through your deck, doing your own little thing. I just want to talk about how this game does it in spades. Like, cause not only have we just talked about combat where you're shooting at units, you're moving into positions and you're blocking them from taking control, but you're adding fogs of like, and then the secondary game, the hand building, you're adding fogs of war into their deck you're you're shooting units in particular that are removing those cards out of their deck it's like you know it has it in spades and it does it very well it's just a fantastic system and i have to say when comparing undaunted normandy to their previous effort which is war chest war chest always felt unsatisfying to me because it devolved into an unsatisfying slog very often i am told by people who know the game very well. This is only because I was playing like a monkey. That may or may not be true. But War Chest seemed to devolve most of the time into a nutritional, dull state where nobody could really get anything going, and it was just a function of who got obliterated first. And the scenario design in Undaunted Normandy, even when it's not as tight as I would like it to be, or even when it leads to the kind of plays and misplays that I was talking about, it at least gives you that additional level of structure that prevents it from just being this casualty-based slog. And as exactly as you said, it is not always about applying casualties. Sometimes it's even about using firepower for reason other than, than casualties. And it's that level of subtlety, it's that level of nuance, those levels of trade-offs that I think elevate Undaunted Normandy above the previous efforts. Yeah, and there's huge tools there for for you to make scenarios, right? There's all the units that you can start with all sorts of different units in each scenario. You can start off with a certain number of the cards in your hand. Like sometimes they start with no units at all on the table or in your hand. They're just off to the side. And, you know, not all of these cards are always available for you to purchase. Like it'll tell you in the scenario, these are the units that you're allowed to purchase this game. So changing that up every time, the the map changes up all the time and like and the deployment areas that i talked about putting these in key spots on the map make it very interesting and where you can deploy these units either at the start or when they die where they can come back on the field i think you know it's huge and i'm really looking forward to the to the next implementation of this coming out okay let's talk about that because i have my final set of comments is about the theming and the representation that's going on in undaunted normandy because i commented when i first played it that I was somewhat disappointed that this kind of feeds into the general industry trope that World War II consisted of the year after the Normandy landings where Americans were fighting Germans. And that's the entirety of the war. And this this was a theme that was actually picked up by Quinns of Shut Up and Sit Down, who started talking about how war games needed to take seriously the representation of Anzac troops and Indian troops and all the non-white, non-American peoples that sacrificed tremendously in the context of World War II. This is fortunately one area where the broader war game market, you know, the Eastern Front is underrepresented culturally, but at least it's well represented in the war game market. So that's one area where we're doing well, because, you know, the Western Front in terms of just sheer loss of life is fractional compared to the sheer loss of life that engaged in the Eastern Front and so the sacrifice of the Soviet allies. Anyway, anyway, 
so this is all part and parcel of the misrepresentation of and the overemphasis on the Western Front, one aspect of the Western Front. I understand why David Thompson did this. I've, I've been in, uh, David Thompson's grandfather served in the American 30th Infantry Division, and so that's why he wanted to make a game about the 30th Infantry Division. And that's fine. That's his prerogative. Absolutely. I'm just talking about broader industry trends here. True, but I want to look at it also at the you know the publisher, right? They want to be able to. When people play these games, they identify with a side in these games. So you really need to emphasize sides that these people can can relate to. I disagree. I think that to a certain extent, a lot of consumer interest is driven by novelty, especially in a very saturated market. It is also the case that the representations that we have of people in media, and this applies to all forms of visible minorities, women, people of color, etc., this claim that people only want to identify with white men is nonsense. And I think that what we need to do, as both consumers and critics and people in the industry, we need to push back on this notion that consumers don't want to see anyone other than the same representations over and over. I, 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 don't, I don't want to say that they don't want to see them. I'm just saying, at the end of the day, they want to sell copies of this game. Sure. And we can agree, though, that we are both very thankful that the next instantiation of the system is going to be undaunted North Africa, and it's going to be the long-range desert group, which consisted of these ki- precisely these kinds of people that we've been talking about, people from the subcontinent, people from the Anzac nations, the Rhodesians, etc., etc., fighting Italians. So these are things that are underrepresented in the context of World War II games. I will say one final thing about the uh, thematic representation of the game, because there's, there's, there's a little bit of designer's notes sprinkled throughout the documentation, and I love that as a, as a war gamer. And he talks about how the names on the cards don't represent actual soldiers. Some of them are playtesters, some of them are other people, etc., etc. He talks a little bit about the 30th Infantry Division. But no mention is made, and I found this very strange, that the game represents African-American soldiers serving alongside white soldiers. This did not happen in World War II. The American army was still segregated during 1944 and 45. It was only desegregated in 1948. And so this is a historical fiction. This is sort of, uh, you know, at best, it's an optimistic fantasy of what the American army was like. I would have liked to mention of that because... You know, we, I don't think we should whitewash history. I don't, I'm not saying that it would have been better that he had presented the game as a purely Caucasian cast. I think it's great that he felt the need to engage in an ahistorical choice to represent people of color fighting in World War II because they did fight in World War II. However, I would have liked an acknowledgement somewhere in the documentation that this is an ahistorical fiction uh, so as to make clear that the army was still segregated at the time. And that's all that I have to say about history and social issues for now. Give me five seconds and I'll have more to say. True. That being said, I love when they do that. I'm very thankful that, you know, at the beginning of every scenario, it said this is representing this particular fight. This is how it happened. This is when it happened. Memoir 44 does the same sort of thing. And I'm thankful when when designers uh, take part of history and are using this as a theme. They don't just, you know, say, okay, this is what it is. You know what I mean? And just just go at it, right? You know, you're Germany, you're U.S. Here's a battlefield. You know, they actually say, you know, this is this is when this happened. This is where this happened. This is why this happened. So, you know, I'm glad they went through the trouble of doing that Yes, the historical flavor about the particular engagement that the 30 Infantry Division engaged in over the course of the Normandy campaign was very, very good. Well, speaking of campaign, we didn't really mention the fact that there is sort of a campaign. You know, they have ways to go through the scenarios in a certain order and, you know, writing the the results down and playing both sides back and forth. And I thought, you know, it's nice to add that type of thing. Haven't tried it, can't comment. So in summary, in a very, very crowded field... 
two-player, quick-playing games. Undaunted Normandy is definitely something that belongs in my collection. I'm going to be keeping it around. Uh, possibly when the next Undaunted version comes out, I'm definitely going to be trying it. Maybe it will obsolete this prior version. I don't know. I haven't seen enough details about the design elements. But, you know, some of my historical misgivings about this, this particular overrepresentation probably means that I'll prefer it. But, again, time will tell. This is definitely not the level of historical detail of a game like Upfront. This is definitely not the level of historical detail of your, your harder core war games. But I think if you're a war gamer, you're going to find enough historical flavor here to keep you happy. And the scenario design definitely has enough historical notes to, to, to keep you engaged. And honestly, in terms of moving deck building forward, which is a genre that can do lots and lots of interesting things, Undaunted Normandy, I think, belongs with a lot of these other quality deck builders that have done substantive things to advance the field and those trade-offs and that card play and the quality of the deck management is definitely truly astounding yeah there's there's like like we already talked about there's simple ways to make up any scenario you want there's if there's a particular part of the war that you're interested in there's ways that you can they're already online people have made all sorts of different scenarios that you can try out that are all different parts of the war you can find whatever it is you're looking for I think it's a fantastic game. Looking forward to the next implementation, the new theater. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for Sober and About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the Sober and About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. We really appreciate it, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! Stay safe. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.